This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Today we're talking about the future of our weather, food, and financial markets and how they're being affected by the burning of fossil fuels. I'm Greg Dalton. Welcome to Climate One. Scientists from the United States and around the world have issued three major reports this year with one core message. Climate disruption is here, now, and evident in all 50 U.S. states. Droughts, floods, and other extreme weather events are impacting American families today present future risks for citizens and businesses. Over the next hour, we will look at the latest climate science and the risks and opportunities in a hot and wacky world. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us six distinguished guests who will join us in two segments. In the second half of the show, we will talk about divesting from fossil fuels and investing in clean energy. We'll hear from two investment managers and a shareholder advocate. First, an update on the latest science and what it means for Americans in their lifetime. Steve Bennett is a senior vice president with Verisk Climate, a data firm serving insurance and other companies. Noah Diffenbaugh is associate professor at the School of Earth Sciences at Stanford University and a lead IPCC author. Rebecca Shaw is associate vice president and lead scientist with Environmental Defense Fund. She also is a lead IPCC author. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you all for coming. Uh, Noah Diffenbaugh, let's begin with you. What's, what are the headlines from the three recent major scientific reports about risks, heat, water, fire, those sorts of things in the United States? You were lead author on a couple of those reports. Yeah, so in the, um, the North American chapter of, of the IPCC and also in the National Climate Assessment that was just released, uh, you know, we, we're collecting um, and evaluating the evidence over the last several years that's been published in the scientific literature. And it's very clear from that evidence that not only is global warming happening, but it's already increasing the risk of high impact extreme events. And we see this in the United States with severe heat. Uh, we see it with heavy precipitation. Uh, we see it with extreme storm surges. Um, so increasing trends in, in all three of these. And uh, looking out over the future, whether it's uh, in uh, business-as-usual world uh, in which emissions continue along their current trajectories or in a world where, where there's policy action and technological development uh, that, that curb emissions away from that uh, business-as-usual, uh, we, we see increasing likelihood of these kinds of extremes. But critically, the, the, the risk of, of further increases in extreme events is substantially greater uh, in the business-as-usual world, the unconstrained world, compared with, say, the United Nations uh, 2 degrees Celsius uh, global warming target. Are there some parts of the United States that are more at risk than others? Is there some place where you should tell your relatives, sell your property now? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think certainly a message from the IPCC report, and I'd say from the National Assessment as well, um, is really a 
question of which kinds of risks are you talking about, and, and you know, I think there's evidence for climate-related risks from the coast to the mountains, uh, oceans and continents. And in fact, we're... Sea to shining sea, there's no place to, to hide, huh? Yeah, and the, you know, the, the, what, the, what the nature of those risks is is really a function not only the, of the physical hazard like the heat wave or the, or the um, heavy rainfall, but also of the, the human dimension and the, the ecosystem dimension, so how the hazard intersects with uh, exposure and vulnerability. And so you'll get a different mix of those three dimensions in different parts of the United States. But uh, there's no, uh, I'm not aware of any part of the United States that, that has zero risk in any of those dimensions. No place to run or hide. Re Rebecca Shaw, you worked on the adaptation, what, what communities and what uh, sectors of the economy in the United States are doing to kind of prepare and brace for this. So what's happening there in terms of getting ready for what's coming our way? Yeah, so I think one point I want to make that I found really exciting about being a part of this IPCC report is the, the shift away from just the impacts alone, here's all the doom and gloom, what's going to happen, a shift to the focus on risk, because risk has a climate component, which is really important, but it also, ha we, we do a lot of things in the way we decide to build where we decide to grow our food, how we grow our food, that actually increase risk that don't have anything to do with climate. Climate is just an extra little push to make it even riskier. And I think there's a lot of ways in the shift to the language of risk reduction means there's things you can already do today to reduce your risk that don't have anything to do with whether with knowing what the climate's going to be in the future. It just you just need to know that things are going to get more variable, and there will be um, greater magnitudes of droughts and floods and storms. And in that, then uh, you can see that there's a lot of uh, um, really interesting activity happening here in the U.S. and around the globe in some of those key sectors that are most at risk, including agriculture, including coastal cities, and uh, including the health sector. They're they're seeing they've already we know that. That there are the we're already feeling the impacts of climate change or the impacts of extreme events. There are uh, folks around the planet in these different sectors actually responding to those and trying to adapt to decrease the risk, both for today's climate and future climate. And they're sharing these through the through the IPCC and other venues. They're sharing these learning experiences. And so when we look at the world in terms of a risk reduction, there's a lot we can do to actually make the world a safer and more vibrant and more economically viable place. But a lot of the time frames here tend to be long term to think about decades, centuries, polar bears and grandchildren, and do humans respond to that kind of risk? I mean, we kind of, we're not so good at saving for retirement, we're not so good at sort of long-term health impacts, I'll you know, go to the bar today, the gym tomorrow, I mean, so, uh, you know, is the time frame really sinking in with risk reduction right now? I, I think it depends on what sector you're actually looking at. If you're talking about agriculture in California, it's definitely sinking in. There's uh, a lot that's been going on uh, that has increased our risk within the California agriculture sector. There's growing of crops that need are really water thirsty that makes those crops and our agricultural economy much more uh, much more vulnerable when we have these big droughts. So we've been increase, increasing every year, increasing our vulnerability uh, by increasing the planting of very, very thirsty crops. And we're feeling we're feeling the brunt of this. You'll see headline after headline now in the in the California newspapers about uh, fields needing to go fallow, particularly around almonds. Almonds, really, really interesting case statement where we're continuing to grow almonds even though the almond crop we have is at risk because it's, because they can't get water for their for their crops. So I think 
we're not responding much to the polar bear anymore. I think that it's really that that it's really hard to hold that in your heart and make decisions on a daily basis. I, but I think we are very much beginning to respond to the impacts, the very real impacts we're feeling in our different economic sectors in our, in our lives. Uh, sure, Noah Diffenbaugh. Um, well, just to amplify what Rebecca was saying about that that time frame, you know, in the last decade or so, the U.S. has experienced more than seventy billion dollar weather and climate disasters. And, and regardless of any trend at all, just year after year, that level of, of risk and, and ultimately damage from climate related stresses suggests that we're not optimally adapted to the climate that we have now. And so that's to, to support what Rebecca was saying about there's a lot that we can do uh, in, in terms of exposure and vulnerability to manage uh, the stresses that we already experience. There's still condo development going on in uh, Miami, et cetera. So and part of that is that there's more property and assets in, in harm's way, the, the coastal, the value of coastal property development, a lot of that is. Steve Bennett, you work in the gap between IPCC science and insurance companies who are trying to say, okay, bad things may happen in 2030, 2050, but I need to make decisions today about my business, where to deploy capital. So tell us about how you're filling that gap between this big picture of science and people making decisions decisions on the ground today? Well, the, in, the insurance industry really has been um, out front of trying to really quantify and understand these risks uh, for a couple of decades now. And there's been um, a series of models that have been developed by companies, many of which are here in the Bay Area, that basically try to take um, the hazards that we're talking about and present them in terms of what the, what the risk of any um, given event or any given hazard might be in any given year. Um, just because if we have 100 years worth of data and we've never observed a particular event in that 100 years, Category 5 hurricane in New York City, um, it doesn't mean it can't happen, right? The, the physics will allow for something like that to happen. So the insurance industry has been out front on trying to um, work with this, the scientific community to get an understanding and fill out that full risk distribution. Uh, so that's one of the things that, that we've been doing, um, is, is trying to help individual companies understand um, what the baseline risk of a hazard is. Um, so is it a 1% chance in any given year? Um, is it a 0.5% chance? Is it a 10% chance? Those kind of things. There's a specific example about roofers that you have that sort of, you know, that sort of brings this home. So tell us about the roofers and after a big storm and maybe climate change is good if you're in the roofing business. I don't know. <laughs> so this is a good example where a few industries uh, come together around a single need. Insurance companies very interested in uh, severe thunderstorm activities, specifically hail falling on a roof. Hail falls on a roof and it damages the, the shingles. So it, as a homeowner, you need to get that repaired or in some cases you would need an entirely new roof. So the insurance industry um, has been very interested historically in, you know, what's the risk of hail in Kansas City versus Dallas versus San Francisco? So what the scientific community has been able to do is take radar data over the last 20 or 30 years, develop algorithms that actually detect hail in, the, in, those radar, or in that radar data, develop an, a footprint of residences or homes or roofs, take that um, radar data and overlay it against the, um, the inventory of roofs to get a sense for how frequently they're hit. So once we have a good answer for an insurance company, they get a good idea of a baseline risk. After any given storm, the insurance company wants to serve their, their customer. They want to serve the policyholder. They'll call the policyholder or the homeowner after an event 
and say, hey, I think hail might have hit your roof. I think we, we probably want to get that repaired, right? So in, in an instance where we have actually real-time data, we can present that to the insurance company and help them understand who they should respond to. What houses, what policyholders should they call? So once we have all of this built out, there's another natural industry that's very interested in the same, the same exact hazard. And that's the, the people and companies that are out trying to deliver the materials to put on those roofs, to actually restore the home. So that's a, that's a natural uh, secondary customer group that we look at and we say, okay, it's the same information. The, the manufacturer of shingles wants to get the shingles to the market that's going to need them the most in the fastest amount of time. So the, the shingle goes to the distributor. The distributor then gets it to the contractor who puts it on the roof. That whole chain is better served by having rapid response information. So the baseline data sort of helps these companies understand generally where they might need to be in any, in any given year. And then they can respond immediately following an event based on the same underlying technology. Rebecca Shaw, if my roof blew off, I'd probably open a bottle of wine. Uh, and the wine industry is one industry that's going to be affected by this. So tell us about how California wine is going to be impacted by this and whether uh, we're going to have to pay more for wine. Well, this is, this is, this is good because I wrote a paper on, on the impacts of, of climate on wine production and then the indirect impacts on other land uses once wine, the wine industry, the wine grape growing industry starts to respond. It was an interesting exercise to go through because none of this stuff is just one impact and then you're done. There, there's cascading impacts and cascading risks. And what we found when we did this study is that everywhere around the planet, um, there are things you can do once the, there are changes in precipitation, changes in temperature, and you know uh, how important specific temperatures and specific uh, rain amount is to the varietals that we love and how important that is to the soil in the combination with the soil. And these are very place-specific in industries, the wine industry. They, they have their names attached to the places where they grow, grow their wine grapes and where they... But um, as, as climate shifts, there will be some places where wine grapes are grown today that won't be suitable for wine grapes in the, in the future. Uh, there are a lot of things that uh, wine grape growers will need to do on place to adapt to reduce the risk, and a lot of them are already doing that. But one of the things we thought we were being really um, forward-looking and looking at is we're, they're going to actually have to start moving, moving north to where climates are different, moving upslopes to where climates where to get the follow the climate that's right for their varietal. And when we actually uh, published the paper, we started a lot of the a lot of the press around it was actually wine grapes growers are already doing that. They're already moving into most of the places that we said were would become suitable, including panda habitat in China, including in uh, the the periphery of, uh, of Yellowstone Park. Every place where we identified that you would would be able to grow grapes in the future, that's already happening. So again, the impacts are here. People are already beginning to adapt around the world, and it will change the kinds of the kinds of produce we're able to get and where we will be sourcing it from. We're talking about climate science and uh, impacts on our food in uh, the United States. Our guests are Steve Bennett with Veris Climate, uh, Rebecca Shaw with the Environmental Defense Fund, and Noah Diffenbaugh from Stanford University. Noah Diffenbaugh, how is this going to affect corn? Big part of the U.S. economy. Are we going to see corn grown in Canada? What, is it going to affect prices and yields? One of the um, advantages that we have in studying uh, impacts on agriculture 
is that a lot of people have been paying really close attention to what how, how climate uh, affects agriculture for a long time, right? So there's a very long history of people paying close attention, measuring the climate and measuring measuring their their agricultural yields and and, and suitability in, in places over over long time periods. And uh, we know from work that others have done, taking huge amounts of data from the United States, uh, looking at how yields uh, vary from year to year in different places. So we know that corn can be very sensitive to severe heat. We know that uh, the likelihood of severe heat has already increased. Uh, in many parts of the world, we know that it, it's very likely to increase further uh, with, with each increment of global warming. And what, what uh, we've seen in our work is that um, when we look out over even, even the two degrees global warming target that the UN has set, even uh, with another, so that's another degree Celsius above what we've had now, we're still likely to see increasing severe heat over the Corn Belt in the United States. And that's, uh, the result of that is likely to be uh, increasing occurrence of supply side shocks. So more and more low yield years uh, in, the, in the U.S. Corn Belt. If you translate that through uh, the, the corn markets, the, that, you know, at, as one would probably infer, we're likely to see more price volatility in, the, in U.S. corn prices. Uh, so in that work, we've also identified potential for adaptation, how much increased uh, heat tolerance would be required, where, where would you find the equivalent Corn Belt climate in the future, and, and it moves as you'd expect um, uh, northward and as global warming occurs. If we look just at the physical hazard, if we look just at how often does severe heat occur, then you know, we see that, that the effects of that dimension. If we overlay that with what can people do uh, in terms of their exposure and vulnerability, there's a lot of opportunity to manage manage the risks that we are experiencing now and manage the risks that we're likely to see in the future. One example of that, you know, staying in the the agriculture and in corn, um, some of the you know technology is really coming to the aid to to sort of help us get a much better understanding of this. And the amount of data available is just exploding. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the equipment on the farm is now has um, monitoring equipment, so that we're taking observations from the tractor um, as it's moving through the field. And I had an opportunity to see some results from, a, from one of these instruments. Uh, and it was really interesting because if you, if you picture in your mind a, you know, sort of a satellite-looking picture, right? And, and in that picture, there's a line of green, horizontal line of green, horizontal line of red, horizontal line of green, horizontal line of red, was an image of yield from a single farm. So the horizontal line of green was high yield, and the horizontal line of red was low yield. Same crop, it was all corn, same field. So what's the difference? It was a different type of seed. It was a different genetic modification of the corn seed. And what had happened, this event wasn't specific to temperature, but it was a wind event. There was a high wind storm that came through. And one variant of corn, the stalks broke in half. And the yield was completely lost. Um, whereas the other variant withstood the high winds. So with the, with the data that we're starting to get, even at that level, I mean, that really helps make some decisions about how you can um, you know, adapt in real time. And there's also the use of drones to look at uh, water patterns and identify leaks. It's always hard to find water leaks. Let's talk about water. Uh, Noah Diffenbaugh, what kind of water stress can we expect? The western United States has been in a severe drought. California's in a historic drought. Uh, what can we expect with regard to too much, too little water in the future? Well, you know, certainly in the western U.S., we're highly reliant on snowpack as a natural reservoir. And basically, um, you know, our water infrastructure and management system is built around uh, 
some of the precipitation falling in, in solid form, falling as snow in the winter and being locked up there in high elevation. And we don't, we don't have to store it because nature's providing that, that service for us. And then uh, as the spring comes, it gradually starts to melt and, and flow downhill into our, into our reservoirs. And, and we're able to get through our summer dry season uh, as a result of that, that natural reservoir. And in California, you know, somewhere around a third of our water is you know, dependent on Sierra snowpack. Um, and certainly this year we're experiencing an extremely low snow year, and, and you know, that's mostly because of uh, lack of precipitation in the mountains. But uh, you know, it, it provides an important example of what uh, we've known uh, in the scientific literature for many years, which is that we're likely to see increasing occurrence of extremely low snow years in response to global warming, uh, both because of uh, more precipitation falling as rain rather than snow with, with the warming atmosphere, and also because the snow that does fall is likely to, to melt earlier, uh, again, in a warmer atmosphere. And so, again, in terms of risk, we're, we're seeing, uh, because of global warming, increasing risk of these extremely low snow years. Rebecca Shaw, what does that mean for streams, fish, habitats? It's hard. I mean, one of the things I didn't talk about in the in the wine grape study that we did is we really wanted to look at this because we wanted to know what the impact of the changes to adapt uh, wine grape growing would be on habitats and on freshwater, um, and the, a lot of the adaptations that take that take place on site on current on current farms actually does great harm to habitats because it draw, they draw down a lot more water. And a lot of the areas in which crops will expand in the future will be wildland habitats now that will be, will be lost if there's expansion. So there's really a need, and I think, uh, for us to really think through the kind of future we want, what we want to be able to grow where, and um, how much water we can afford to use on uh, crops versus for, for people. Uh, people drinking water or for for the environment and really think thoughtfully about where, how we're going to adapt our way through this so that we can meet the needs of people as well as meet the needs of nature in the future. And I, I think if we don't think through it, we will have some catastrophic failures, starting first in natural systems, in streams, and in rivers. Some people talk about California exporting water in the, in the form of alfalfa, water-intensive crops, cotton. Uh, do you think California should not export water-intensive crops, given this water stress that Noah Diffenbaugh has, has been talking about? I don't really have an opinion on that. Um, I do think that we really need to look at our cropping patterns. That's one of the major uh, adaptations that will take place. But that's a medium-term uh, adaptation strategy. Short term is figuring out how you use less water to grow the same crops you have now. Make sure you have water water irrigation that's very, very efficient. Making sure that that you're uh, watering at the right times of the day. There, there's just very simple adaptation changes that re reduces the risks to both crops and to and to streams and wildlife. But I, but I think in the long term we're really going to have to think about what we're going to grow here. And some crops are going to be less viable because water will be more scarce in the future. What we want to make sure to do is we plan and, and adapt in a, in a constructive and measured way so we don't hit those disruptive things. Rebecca Shaw is the Associate Vice President with the Environmental Defense Fund. We're talking about climate change at Climate One. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. I got a feel from all of you that you're fairly optimistic on some level about what's happening. And I'd kind of like you to maybe score where you stand personally on how you feel we're doing in terms of figuring out ways to uh, adapt in some way. 
with 10 being, uh, you know, we've got it licked completely and we're, we're fine. And one being, there's no chance we are not going to make it. Professor Diffenbaugh, you grade papers, so you get that one first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, again, I think if we just look at the climate that we have now, we experience a lot of stress from it. We get a lot of benefit from it, but we experience a lot of stress. And I think, you know, j just in the U.S., if, we, you know, if we've experienced more than $70 billion disasters from weather and climate over the last decade, uh, it's, it's hard to say that we're, that we're well adapted to the climate that we have now. So I, I guess we can, we can certainly improve in how we, how we interact with, with those climate stresses. Rebecca Shaw? So, so if you had asked me this question before I started working on the IPCC and had really the opportunity to spend time with some really great minds pulling, culling together all the information from around the world about what was going on in adaptation, I would have said, which one's the depressed part? One, well, one's, so I would have been right around a two because, because of our inability to get together and have um, so some kind of resolution. You would have been more depressed. So you're uh, happier. More depressed, happier okay. now because <laughs> the only... If, you, if you're looking at risk reduction, if you're looking at making sure that people and, and nature are able to transition through, through to our, the next era, um, all we had in front of us uh, five years ago was mitigating greenhouse gas emissions, reducing green. And there was really, it looked bleak five years ago on, on that. It looked bleak. Statewise, it was looking pretty positive. Nationally, internationally, very bleak. When you look at risk reduction through adaptation opportunities, through what we can do to really uh, make our world more vibrant, that we have local control over in a lot of, local meaning even municipalities and the state, we really have a lot of control and there's a lot of positive things happening around the world. We still have to, the mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions really has to go along with, uh, with the reducing risk on, uh, through adaptation, and they have to go hand in hand. And I think you see this, the more uh, folks around the globe are getting involved in the adaptation opportunities to reduce risks to the climate um, disruptions they're already feeling, they're getting more connected to the, what that long-term, how important it is to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. So the two linked together are a powerful message for how we can change the direction. And I didn't see that happening five years ago. Welcome optimism. Steve Bennett, quickly, and then we'll go to our next question. I answer this question from a slightly different angle, which is, you know, I look at it from the business community's perspective. And because I guess I come out of the scientific community to get here, I think about it in two ways. First is, the more the business community gets involved in this issue, the better off we are, because we have more eyes focused on the issue, we have more resources focused on the issue. So I kind of look out across the industrial sector, and I, I look at it from a perspective of what do you do? So as a business, what do you do with this information? I think over the last 10 years, there's been a, a solid shift of, of that motivation throughout the business community. So I still think the insurance industry is probably one of the most uh, attuned to it. But we've seen, we've seen the agriculture community and, the, and the, the agribusiness community come to a point where um, they've always known that weather impacts, right? I mean, that's, this is nothing new to a farmer, right? But beginning to get engaged at a sense of trying to really understand how the weather changes year to year, month to month, that kind of thing. It's really the weather that we're interested in here because it's the weather that impacts what we do every day. Climate is how that weather is changing over time. Um, so I think there was a study from the Chicago Mercantile Exchange um, mentioning about 30% of the U.S. GDP is impacted by weather. 
Uh, that's by extreme events and by just simple shifts off the mean. So to answer your question, I think I would look at the insurance industry as probably being um, the most attuned to the issue. And then I think you sort of walk through the various industries that come down that curve. You know, I think um, it's hard to give a number because it spreads out across so many different industries. But I would say that in my career over the last 10 years, the business community as a whole is paying attention. And they're trying to figure out what to do. They're trying to figure out how to react. Um, so first they want to understand what's going on, and then they want to react to it from a how does weather impact me perspective. Let's go to our audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Yeah, hi, Dan Miller. There's a number of scientific groups say that under business as usual, we're going to hit and exceed 4 degrees Celsius or 7 degrees Fahrenheit later this century. And Kevin Anderson, a climate scientist at the Tyndall Center in the UK, says of that temperature that it is uh, – not compatible with an organized global community beyond adaption, devastating to the majority of ecosystems, and probably will lead to higher temperatures. Do you think there's a chance he's correct? And what are your comments on that for, of adaption versus mitigation? Noah Diffenbaugh? Yeah, so, you know, the work, that, the work that I've done on that world, that unconstrained business-as-usual world, four-degree world, where, you know, mo almost every area of the Earth is likely to see... Um, the summer be hotter than it's than it ever was in the last twenty years uh, or even fifty years. You know, so basically year after year, an extreme summer year after year. And we've looked at you know that sort of metric in, in a bunch of different ways. It's clear that for for many parts of the world, you have to go to the other end of the world to find the equivalent climate. Uh, and certainly, high elevation areas, the the poleward edges of continents, uh, where you know you can. The climate kind of marches to the end of South America and then hits the ocean. And now, you know, where, where, where do you find another land area that has the same climate that you started with? Um, so those all, the, the, the rate of change in that business-as-usual world certainly is, will cause big challenges. You know, I guess I'm, I'm optimistic about human ingenuity and, and creativity. We certainly have, you know, find a way to adapt to, to a large range of environments at present. You know, a lot of it's a question of equity. You know, certainly, if we look at we look at the world now with with uh, you know a billion and a half people that lack access to electricity and a billion people that lack access to clean water and two and a half billion people that rely on biomass for cooking, um, there's a lot of vulnerability in the current climate. And you know, I think the question for this business as usual world is you know what how is the world going to ensure access to the benefits of energy consumption while minimizing the the impacts. Rebecca Shaw, a brief last word on that adaptation. Yeah, we don't want to go to four degrees. And, and most of the climate models are saying that if under business as usual, we get to four degrees, they sort of, they sort of disagree on when we get there. But we don't want to go to four degrees. And uh, I think the discussion around risk reduction through adaptation connects people more tangibly to the need for greenhouse gas mitigation that will help us avoid a four-degree world. Look, at we have a one-degree world now, and look what's happening and we have these disruptions, and there's severe disruptions and disruptions. We are really, we're t all wrestling with how are we going to deal with this California drought, with the hurricanes, with the, with the heat waves, and the loss of crops. We don't want to go to a four-degree world. We have to end it there. Rebecca Shaw is Associate Vice President of the Environmental Defense Fund. We've also heard from Noah Diffenbaugh, Associate Professor at the School of Earth Sciences at Stanford University and a lead IPCC author, and Steve Bennett, Senior Vice President at Veris Climate. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're talking about severe weather and the risk it presents to communities, companies, and investors. 
After talking about science in the first half of the show, we turn now to financial markets. We're joined by Andrew Behar, CEO of As You Sow, a shareholder advocacy group that presses energy companies to confront and disclose climate risk. Lisa Goldberg is director of research at Aperio Group, an investment firm that manages $8 billion in assets. She's a former director of research at MSCI and an adjunct professor of statistics at the University of California at Berkeley. And Josh Shine is CEO of Global Key Advisors, an investment firm, and a former senior portfolio manager at Morgan Stanley. Please welcome them to Climate One. Lisa Goldberg, let's begin with you. Can you tell us what the carbon bubble is? The carbon bubble is a bunch of assets pouring into, well, any bubble is assets pouring in unreasonably to a particular asset class. We had a housing bubble that I think we all remember in 2008 burst, and there's a concern that assets can be pouring into carbon-rich carbon assets, and these assets could lose their value unexpectedly and suddenly, and uh, investors will be at a loss. And why would they change suddenly? What is it about carbon that is risky, or that, that, what's, what's driving the, the potential bubble, if there is one? Well, there is a huge body of science saying that we're having warming to the planet due to carbon being released into the atmosphere. And as a result of that, we could, for example, have regulation. Governments could come and say, well, we can no longer burn carbon-rich uh, assets as we have, and this regulation could change the value of companies that had previously been making a big profit from carbon. For example, we would no longer be able to uh, get the same benefit from burning oil, and then oil in the ground will not have the same value that it once did. And is this something that, you know, this is a Greenpeace idea, or is this large investment banks, or who, who's, who's subscribed to this idea that there's this risk there? Well, I don't think a few years back that markets were attuned at all to the financial risks associated to climate. I think we've been hearing about climate risk in terms of, of agriculture and so on, um, transportation problems for a very long time. But in terms of its impact on economic markets, I think that it's just really now coming to the consciousness of, of mainstream investors as well as um, more scientific types or more forward-looking types. And a phrase that you might have heard, stranded assets. This is assets that, say, oil in the ground that was once thought to have a certain value, maybe it'll have less of a value in the future, that hence the assets become stranded. This is now becoming more and more mainstream in financial conversations, and it's a concern on the mind of some investors. So that a company could develop offshore oil wells or big, big energy projects, and they wouldn't be able to extract the value, basically burn the, the fuel, the carbon in, in the ground. Andy, Andrew Behar, let's get you on that in terms of how, how this is starting to percolate into uh, the consciousness of, of mainstream companies. You work on that. I think one of the key points was HSBC and Citibank came out with a, couple, a report a year or two ago and kind of put their imprimatur on that, which was no longer just some environmental groups. It's like, okay, these are big... Wall Street investment bank saying, this is credible. Well, I think it started with uh, Carbon Tracker came out with a report, mm -hmm. and what they said was if you actually look at what the proven reserves of the 200 largest oil and gas and coal companies in the world, if you look at what's on their balance sheets, like what is an asset that's actually known to be, you know, have, have a value, you could borrow money against it. If you were to add all those up and you were to pull them up out of the ground and burn them, that you would be raising the temperature of the earth by five degrees centigrade. 
and that's something that's not acceptable. That in Copenhagen, we all said two degrees is the most. So therefore, a majority of them are going to stay underground. And that's the notion of, of stranded assets. So I think what we're seeing is that the financial markets are really starting to understand that there is a lot of risk on the fossil fuel side. And there's a great deal of opportunity on building clean energy infrastructure. So it's, it's a transition that's happening. There's, going to be, there's a capital flow that is happening. And the World Economic Forum said that we need to move a trillion dollars a year from fossil fuels into building a clean energy future. And that's basically what we're seeing. Josh Schein, you like energy stocks for their, for their uh, stability, oil and gas companies. Do you see the risk that they, we just heard about? I, I do see the risk. I, um, you know, I, I'm not in love with energy stocks. They're just part of it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm neutral on uh, if the S&P is 10% energy, that's where I want to be. And I, I try to find greener things to, to get into, but the, the volatility is higher. I, I use a database where we, we develop it, where we look at 5,000 publicly traded companies and look at descriptions of these companies. Ten years ago, when I first ran a screen for the word solar, you know, what were my options? There were three companies that came up in the database. Two of them were trading under a dollar. I couldn't touch them. And one of them I didn't touch anyway. It was, a, it was an $8 stock, and it went bankrupt. Um, I ran the screen yesterday before coming into here, and I found it was gratifying. I found 189 companies that had the word solar in their description. There's more to work with. And I looked at uh, wind power as a keyword term. I mean, I, I looked at it 10 years ago. There was nothing. 25 companies came up yesterday. So I, I do have options. There are things I can do besides fossil fuels, which is, which is gratifying. So it, it definitely has you know, my attention, and I, and I get into these stocks. But an increasing number in recent years of, of investments have gone toward passive investment, the idea that stock picking is kind of a fool's game and that, that indexing. And if you buy into an index, most commonly the S&P 500, you're getting a pretty healthy basket of you know, some of the biggest companies by market capitalization in the, in, the, in the country are fossil fuel stocks, right? Exxon, Shell, et cetera. So if you're investing in indexing, smart thing to do, uh, aside from carbon risk, you're owning fossil fuel stocks. Isn't that right, Josh Hine? That's correct. But then you can also get sector indices so that you can avoid, you can avoid fossil fuel stocks. You can just uh, put together a grouping of companies. And, and there are even companies out there like Motif that will let you put together your own ETF, basically. You can have a theme that you can, you can have them create an ETF for you. Uh, ETF, sorry. You can, you can have them create your own little investment universe of a particular set of stocks. It could be a theme. I, I like Seattle or... I want companies there, or it can be something like I, I don't want fossil fuel and I want to short it. Do, in your experience, do people f uh, short stocks that they think are bad? That's, is that a tool? No, and no I, I have never in my career seen or heard of anyone doing it. And it's always fascinated me because I, you know, I, I think if you, if, you want to own, if you want to own stocks that you think are good, well, what about shorting the villains? What about shorting stocks that you think are not good? And, and we should explain, shorting is basically betting that the price is going to go down. Lisa Goldberg, is that a tool at all, shorting uh, fossil fuel stocks? If you really want to you know, be serious about this, and if you buy the carbon bubble uh, theory, then you would short these stocks and say they're going to go down. It's risky. Risky. Yeah, you've got to put some money, skin in the game. Please well, we, there are some examples I can think of where uh, carbon stocks have been shorted, most notably in a swap uh, by the World Wildlife Foundation. So it's exactly an example of what you're talking about. But at Aperio, we've done a slightly different exercise, uh, which I'd like to tell you about, having to do with staying with the market without carbon. Now, if I were to, t I had an investor who wanted to stay exactly with the market and didn't want to have carbon stocks, 
Well, by excluding, simply excluding carbon stocks, it would not be possible. I would be different from the market. You'd My pay a penalty probably and have less return, make not less money. I, I wouldn't say that. I would say you would have different returns. It could be greater or it could be less, depending on whether energy did better than the market or did worse than the market. But there are quantitative tools that you can use to take stocks after carbon stocks have been excluded and reweight the remaining ones to have match the characteristics of which have excluded. And this is, this is an exercise that we've actually done and found that you can stay very close, say, to the S&P 500, a broad market index, without carbon by simply reweighting, cleverly reweighting the stocks that remain. And this is done with, with factor models and optimizations, standard, yep. standard tools of finance that may not be familiar to the audience, but they're actually quite mainstream. So what, does that mean sell Exxon, buy more Apple? It means sell Exxon and buy more something. And in this case, a lot of the money went into utilities. Buy what you need to buy in order to stay close to the index. That's, a, that's the simplest thing to do. And that's the nature of the study we've carried out. And how many people or institutions are doing that now? Percentage of your clients at Aperio? At Aperio, um, a relatively small percentage, but I would say definitely a growing percentage interested in just staying with the index without carbon and yet another group that are doing what you suggested, namely targeting where the money that's come out of carbon stocks ought to go uh, through an index, uh, an environmental innovator index that we have been, been using, which looks at companies that put a large percentage, uh, get a large percentage of their revenue and their income from uh, climate science innovation, from waste, green waste, from renewable energy, from, from those types of uh, activities. And just let me just add to that, because BlackRock recently came out with mm -hmm. a, a, a fund that um, they're working with, with the FTSE, and that... Financial Times, NRDC, mm -hmm. Environmental Group, and BlackRock, right. a big investment house. Right, and so what, what this shows to me is that, because BlackRock is such, well, it's the largest um, investor in the world, that they're seeing that there's a market for these kind of products, for a carbon-free product. And they're set up so that large institutions could move, you know, 50 million, 100 million dollars in, in a chunk over into this and have, um, and have reduced their, or eliminated their carbon exposure. And, and there's many mutual funds that are coming out that are carbon-free. There's the Aperio Carbon-Free Index. Um, and so products are coming, and more and more people want to be away from that risk of fossil fuels. Stanford took a uh, move away from fossil fuels recently and divested from, from publicly traded coal companies, small portion of their, uh, of their overall portfolio. But Lisa Goldberg, does that hurt the coal companies when Stanford says, ah, we don't like you, we're not going to invest in you, it's symbolic, but does it really have an impact? Well, it's very hard to answer that question, like all questions in economics. I'm afraid there's not a consensus. but. Um, there is certainly a, um, a very big psychological impact with a, a leading science, leading institution like Stanford. Uh, people pay attention. People think, well, maybe this is important. And so I would say the feedback from doing this sort of divestment is certainly very important at getting others who, who have confidence in Stanford and in Stanford's ability to generate income to, to feel it's okay to divest. But Josh Shine, if stocks for coal companies go down, that's just cheaper for people who that's like That's the thing. Are you creating companies? opportunities for other people to, to, to take the money you've left on the table? That's, uh, 
I, I struggle with this too. I mean, I also look at the academic work on this, and you're right, there's no consensus on it. You're not sure um, if you're just creating opportunities for others to come and buy them cheaper, or if you're really having an impact on, on the stock and making people, uh, not, just, not just people want to own it, but maybe the executives that get paid in stock options, maybe, you know, maybe they don't want to work for these companies because their stocks aren't going to go up as much with 20% of the investment public you know, not willing to buy them. But in the um, case of coal, I mean, the coal companies were hurting all of these, these big endowments because coal dropped 58% in the last four years. So um, the fact that there is risk, that is, I think, the bottom line, is that, you know, we talk about the carbon bubble. Well, coal is the carbon bubble letting out its first, it's the first bursting of the carbon bubble is coal. It's just collapsing. Five bankruptcies, 58% decline. Um, and oil is going to be next. You know, you see... Chevron missed its numbers by 27% in the first quarter. So it's, it's a shift. It's a, it's a big shift. But globally, coal's market share of electricity is growing. The coal is often talked about dying in the United States, partly because of fracking and natural gas is making uh, more uh, competitive to generate electricity with natural gas. But China and India, they bring it on. In fact, the coal that used to be uh, consumed internally in the United States is now thought to be, uh, you know, exported Appalachian coal to Europe and other places. Actually, the coal, the coal is not being exported. Most of those ports that were, they're trying to export it. Right. Um, there's a lot of fights going on at a lot of ports, and the coal is not moving offshore. Um, I doubt that it will. Um, but China is actually talking about closing coal plants within the next 10 years because they're going to be building solar and wind at 15 times the rate that we are building it because it's just cheaper to get a kilowatt of electricity from solar than it is from coal. It's just less expensive. And that's the whole point is that it's just economics. It's just cheaper. And that's what China is doing. China is going to be leading the way in this, as far as I can see. And they will be closing coal plants. Josh Schein, uh, there is there's more opportunities to invest in clean, cold solar, et cetera. But those companies can be pretty risky, too. A lot of right. people have got burned on solar stocks. What right. do you see there in that sector? Right. I don't necessarily want to put 10% of the portfolio into solar. It's, it's just it's too risky. I mean, I feel like I, I want to do it, but then I, you know, my... I feel like I... You, you might know. get fired. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm being paid to represent clients on Wall Street, not Washington. And that part of me says that, and part of me wants to do a better job, so I'll try to fit the solar into it. But it's a struggle, and I think, I think we, all, we all struggle with this. And, and on this carbon risk, do you think that if there's these stranded assets and that, boy, there's going to be a big crash coming if some of this unburnable carbon, this, these coal and oil in the ground, at some point governments, as Lisa Goldberg said, are going to say, you can't burn this. You'll, you'll destroy civilization, fry the planet. Do you think you'll see that coming in time to switch your clients out of oil and gas Not stocks? Not at all. Not at all. But, but I also look at it that the energy is 10% of the portfolio. If it went down 30%, you lose 3%. So these things happen. And I think that's just the prevailing view of Wall Street. Let's get back to uh, growing global demand. While it's true that because of auto efficiency in the United States and partly the recession and partly regulation, uh, peak car, people owning fewer cars, that sort of thing, uh, vehicle miles, that sort of thing is, is going down. But globally, Andy Behar, there are hundreds of millions of people who, a billion people without electricity, energy poverty, people who live on a dollar a day. Those people want to get up into the middle class, as 300 million people have done in China. And they are hungry for a connected, electron-powered lifestyle that we have. And that will increase global demand, which means the Exxons and the Chevrons and the coal companies say, hey, we're just satisfying demand. There's a market for what we do, and we're going to suck it out of the ground and make money as long as people want it. The key thing that you just said is an electron 
based demand. So how you make those electrons is really what the issue is. Is it less expensive to build a giant coal plant in India, run transmission lines, or is it more efficient to put solar and wind out in the villages, out in the people who have, have nothing? The thing about renewables is once you install them, the only cost is going to be servicing your debt. With commodities, you're constantly having to buy coal, having to buy gas, having to buy you know, something to burn uh, if it's biomass, and those fluctuate up and down all the time. So the thing that we're seeing, and, and we filed shareholder resolutions at big utilities, at First Energy and Southern, and what we said to them is, look, your biggest, or our biggest, or shareholders, um, box stores, our biggest customers are these box stores, and they're all putting up solar. Why? Because they want to lock in a 20-year rate. They want to be able to know absolutely what their electricity bill is going to be for 20 years. You can't do that from, as a utility. So you're losing your biggest customers, and yet we have to maintain all these transmission lines. So we've graphed this out, and we think we're losing revenue, we're increasing our costs, and uh, it doesn't look very good for us. Here's a better business model. Why don't we own this? Why don't we get behind distributed power? Why don't we push on the state regulators to, to increase the number of, of all the distributed power. It's also a much more resilient grid. You know, the United States Army does not believe the U.S. grid is resilient enough. They're totally off the grid, and, you know, and, and they're working, they're making JP-8 out of, uh, you know, out of algae. Jet so, fuel. Yeah. Jet fuel, sorry. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we proposed this to First Energy, and they came back and said... That's an electric utility. That's a huge electric utility in, in Ohio, and um, they came back and said, this is very interesting we're going to work with you to, to write a report and to analyze this. So the utilities are re-looking at their business plans, and that's, I think, a critical turning point. We're talking about climate and uh, invest and divest in fossil fuels at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests are, we just heard from Andrew Behar, CEO of As You Sow, a shareholder advocacy group. Also, Lisa Goldberg, Director of Research with the Aperio Group, and Josh Schein, CEO of Global Key Advisors. Uh, we haven't talked yet about water. There's also some water risks. Some people think that climate impacts will be most direct uh, water, either too much of it or too little of it. Uh, Andy Behar, are you engaging companies on water risk? Um, we, the, it's one of the things that we talk to the utilities about, particularly there's a lot of water that's used in coal-fired generation, and, um, and so we're seeing that as just, as shareholders, we're seeing that as a major risk point, and so we're asking them for reports on their water, what are they going to do about it, how are they operating, particularly in, in drought areas. Last summer, there were some examples where they had to shut down power plants because water was too hot um, and there wasn't enough water. So they're having to mix this into, into their analyses of how they're going to make their business model work. So water is, is a big issue with, with utilities. Lisa Goldberg, water on your radar? Absolutely. It's one of the, the categories for the environmental innovators that uh, there are mm -hmm. five of them, and this, is, this water's all by itself in that group. So I think it's definitely important. And where, is, do, where are the big risks or the big, oppor big opportunities for innovation in water? Is it... Well, reusing water, just uh, imagine in your own home, if you didn't just uh, push all water down the same pipe, you would be able to reuse some water, say, on your plants more efficiently. And so there's a huge uh, innovation opportunities for refitting homes and refitting businesses to use even the water, just as we're doing it now, more intelligently. Um, Andy Behar, uh, you've 
talked briefly earlier about shareholder advocacy, and we're going to go to audience questions. But tell us about Anadarko uh, and what happened there, as well as some other companies, in terms of getting uh, shareholder pressure to get fossil fuel companies to recognize some of the fossil uh, balance sheet risks we've been talking about. So we filed the, the same resolution that we filed with, with Exxon um, about carbon asset risk with Chevron, Hess, Consul, and Anadarko. Um, in the case of Anadarko, we got a, a very large vote, which is a 30% vote. And just so you understand how shareholder votes work, they're non-binding votes, but it's an indication to the board and to the management that, that shareholders are very concerned about risk. Um, the SEC requires that you get 3%, and we got a 30%. So just what's, what, how, you, how you judge it. Um, the reason we got such a good vote is, I believe, we spent a lot of time talking to the pension funds, to CalPERS, CalSTRS, New York City, New York State, to some of the big unions, they're all very concerned because it's not so much, it, it, well, it is the company itself, and they, they all own everything, so they own these companies, but the impact of climate across the whole portfolio, like when you have a Hurricane Sandy, when you have a drought, when you have what happens in the Philippines, when you have all of this stuff combined, what they're seeing is that it's, when you have $70 billion worth of damage done to the United States year after year after year, and who's going to pay for that? And it's just, they see it as impact across their whole portfolio. So that was the signal they wanted to send to Anadarko, is you guys really have to look at your business model. There is deeper risk here than anybody is talking about, and it goes across the whole economy as well as within the oil and gas industry. And what did ExxonMobil say? That received a lot of headlines because of their previous role in funding, research, uh, communications, denying uh, climate science. And for ExxonMobil to say, yes, we're going to uh, acknowledge well, climate I'll, risk, that was a... Uh, I'll quote them. They said... We are confident that none of our hydrocarbon reserves are now or will be, ever become stranded. What's interesting is that that statement came out the same day as the IPCC-5 report came out. They came out like basically within an hour of each other. And the reason that Exxon said that they don't see any risk is because they said, we must uplift the, the poor and the impoverished and the vulnerable of the world through burning our fossil fuels. And the, the IPCC-5 report, which was reviewed by 830 scientists of every nation of the world, looking at 10,000 peer-reviewed studies, said exactly the opposite. It said those very people that Exxon says we're going to uplift will become climate refugees, that they will, and I will quote the IPCC-5, that there's going to be death, injury, ill health, disrupted livelihoods, severe ill health for large urban populations, breakdown of infrastructure, electricity, water supply, and health. And then they add, particularly, for the least developed countries and vulnerable communities. So you have two very different visions of the world. You have Exxon's that everything's all okay and we're going to save the world with our, you know, burning our oil. And then you've got the rest of the world and all the scientists saying, this is not going to happen, that these very people are the ones going to be, who are going to be most affected and that we need to do something about it rapidly because business as usual is going to create havoc. Let's go to our audience questions. We're talking at Climate One about climate and investment risk. Uh, welcome to Climate One. California's been using a cap-and-trade system for the last, I believe, year or two, and British Columbia province in Canada has taxed carbon for the last five years. And I'm wondering, to the financial community, what sort of approach from the government side is the most easy for the markets to work with? Policy and market uh, going together. Andrew Behar? 
Well, I, I guess one of the things about the, the EPA's you know, announcement, well, it was great to get an announcement. This was about uh, regulating coal-fired emissions for the first time. Right. And, well, first of all, they based it on a standard, they said 30%, but what they really mean is 15%. Um, and so they just kind of dressed it up because they're actually not looking at today's um, numbers. They're looking at, I believe it's... 2005 or Yeah, 2005. Yeah. So they kind of you know, got a little bit better press than it deserved. And then they also, there's a real, I think, problematic thing with that the states can decide on how the cap and trade is, um, is going to be implemented. And so it would allow companies that are burning coal to continue to burn coal. They would be able to buy credits from you know, some other entity and then probably be able to pay, to charge their, their um, rate payers to pay for those credits. So, you know, the people who are going to get hurt, I believe, are the people, the ratepayers, and that is not going to actually decrease the amount of, of carbon emissions. There's a, a lot of loopholes, but I'm very happy to see that there was something at least put out there because um, it's been few and far between. And uh, step forward. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Uh, I work with 350 Bay Area and a coalition of people from around the state that are advocating for divestment of California's public institutions from the 200 largest fossil fuel companies, namely CalPERS, CalSTRS, and UC. And some of the people that we talk to say that it's a better strategy to do shareholder engagement because then you can get the companies to change their business practices. I'm wondering if you can just comment on how you see um, divestment versus um, shareholder action for fossil fuel investments at this point. Andrew Behar, you yeah. kind of support both, inside, outside? Well, what's interesting is that uh, Bill McKibben's response to the Exxon report is, Exxon has just stated exactly what I've always said. Exxon has now come out publicly and said that they are outside of the, the laws of physics, I believe he said. And... <laughs> Wall Street looks at that really carefully. When Exxon is over here and IPCC5 is over here, and Exxon says, no risk, I think that what this does is it really helps Wall Street to look at Exxon and say, lots of risk. We need to really assess this. And so um, I think the shareholder advocacy and the engagement and getting that report is critical. And that's why I think it received so much press. Um, you know, there were like 300 press reports about this because Exxon had never even spoken about climate change you know, at all. They were climate deniers. And here they were now saying, okay, there is this risk and, and here's what we're going to do about it. So just having that conversation publicly, I think is a huge step and I think it's a real milestone. We have to end it there. We've been talking about carbon and climate risk at Climate One. Our guests have been Josh Shine, Senior Portfolio Manager, formerly at Morgan Stanley, uh, Lisa Goldberg, Director of Research at the Perio Group, and Andrew Behar, CEO of As You So, an advocacy group. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming and listening to Climate One today. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. <laughs>